Welcome to the TCM Challenge, a monthly movie review podcast where Matt and I challenge each other to watch some classic films. This month's movie is 1957's Curse of the Demon, or Night of the Demon, depending on which side of the pond you are, and I'm Matt in Buffalo. And I'm Matt in Arizona, and happy Halloween season, everybody. We thought we always celebrate with a good uh, horror-themed movie, and tonight is no different. Well, if Matt had his way, it would not have been, if we recall how yes, we settled on I this understand. one. <laughs> yes, I know, I know, but but we're here, we watched this movie, it's Halloween-themed, we're good. All right, so like I said, let's see how we got there. So to refresh everybody's memory, my choice for October was The Curse of the Demon, 1922's Hacks On, which is a um, 100-minute-plus silent film, Really iconic imagery. You see those gifts everywhere, but I didn't want to pick it because we already did a silent film and they're a little maybe tough to stretch out. Matt's strong favorite uh, was The Long, Long Trailer, starring, starring Lucille Ball from my hometown. 1954's, dare I say, iconic Marlon Brando film, On the Waterfront. And finally, 1965's, Two on a Guillotine. And really, it came down to it had to be a horror movie. I love themed episodes. It had to be one. I yeah. really hope I, the it's roll fun. of the dice gives us a, a Christmas one as well. But it had to be Curse of the Demon. I had nothing coming, you know, no knowledge really coming in on this one. Other than I was aware that this is a highly regarded classic film by a lot of people reading about it um it's martin scorsese's or one of his favorite horror movies so i mean that kind of it's out there made it interesting enough to dive into and if you do a quick google you'll always see the monster uh that is not featured prominently in the movie and it was enough to make me go oh, i don't know what this is i want to watch it so there you go that's how we got there and to level yeah. set a little bit before we dive into it 1957, the movies that were coming out at the time were some rather big ones, like The Bridge on the River Kwai was the top grossing film, for what it's worth. Also, the best motion picture at the Oscars, beating out oh, the 12 Angry Men, Henry Fonda. Oh. That's The Academy gets it wrong. I love The Bridge on the River Kwai, but 12 Angry Men, my God, right? But some what of the you- other highest, gro- oh, go on. I was going to say one of the best law movies, but watching it now as a lawyer, they do everything that you don't want a jury to do. Just saying. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, We'll get into this one of like how like is this everything that you want a skeptic to do in a in a movie as well? Uh, But some of the other higher grossing films, Old Yeller, Sayonara, uh, um, Marlon Brando drama, uh, Gunfight at the OK Corral. So. You know, kind of classic ones, and then we have a weird little cool horror movie. So I also thought, you know, when we go into like genre films, it's maybe a little unfair to compare that to the Oscar winners or, you know, the the highest box office ones. So so what B movies did we have coming out this year? I think B movies is harsh, but I went back and I guess I didn't do the math i didn't really realize but horror movies of the 50s right you have the fly them house of wax horror dracula the thing from the back uh, another world another the original world. the thing yeah uh creature from the black lagoon house on haunted hill godzilla invasion of the body snatcher so it's an interesting time where it's schlocky b but what I think the kids call elevated horror is starting to slip into this, right? So it's you have your Godzilla, your your um, you know invasion of the body snatchers. There's some real meat to it. You don't have to have just shrieking women at a blob or something like that, right? Or a Although giant the blob did, did come out in the fifties with Steve. McCoy. I know, <laughs> but it's they could it. Shows that it's a legitimate genre that can be something else and not just, like I said, a giant spider monster sure. or something like that. So you could actually do something more with the genre, which now I think we need to transition into our cursor Night of the Demon. We start to see that a little bit here. It is not just a creature feature. 
by any means, right? No, it's not. So I, I won't it say opens until we, we go in. Yeah. So I mean, the uh, beginning of it kind of undermines our point a little bit, but right out the bat, we're getting reversed, reused footage, uh, using it twice. Uh, you see a car speeding through the woods, black and white, by the way, beautiful black and white. The right off the bat, I don't know if you saw it, but like the trees silhouette, I swear they, it was spelling out something like you could pick out lettering in there. It was an eerie effect, but it, I'm sure it was accidental, but it looked like the trees were spelling out words in the woods. Yeah. I'm just curious. Did your version of the movie start with uh, Stonehenge? Cause mine did. And I know that there are alternate cuts of this film. Yeah, so that is the, uh, there's a whole bunch of nuance in this, and it was really tricky to try and sort this all out online. So you have basically it all, it's a couple minutes difference here or there between U.S. release, British release, and maybe some, you know, TV releases down the line. And it's largely kind of meaningless changes, slight rearrangements of scenes, but I'm assuming you maybe watched the Amazon. I watched the Amazon one and that was the one. I mean, I watched the version that was distributed by Columbia here in the U S right. So if you read that or if you watch that and then read the plot description on uh, Wikipedia, they don't really line up perfectly. So there's like small changes, but yeah, it opens up with just a narration over Stonehenge talking about, you know, since time immemorial, you can, there's legends that you can summon a demon for your bidding. Right, right. Not that not that I thought it was a not that I thought it was a big plot point that you missed. I was just curious to know if that was one of the differences and maybe you'll help point out where things are a little bit different in each cut, even though you said it's not substantial really. It's it's not like there the seance scene, I think they snip basically a couple lines. Um and then a couple scenes just happen at different points. It's really curious why they happen, like the scene where he's in the hallway of his hotel. Uh, you know, uh, John Holden, uh, the character, and he's like, it's spooky. Um, that just happens at a different point. Um, and then really, it it maybe should be there just because it's so just curious at the time. When they end up doing that hypnosis scene with the canatonic prisoner, mental patient, they actually had a scene where they go and visit uh, his parents to get consent for when they ultimately kill him in front of an audience. Um, so just like little details like that were, that didn't need to be in there, um, strictly speaking. So yeah, I guess cut it out, cut the, the rundown down by like four minutes. Like that makes a big difference. Like that right. makes a difference. Cause I mean, this was a cool hour and 28. I loved it. Right. Me too. <laughs> just, I don't think any horror movie should be over 95 minutes. I don't think they can sustain just get in there and get out right but i kind of think that about every movie so anyhow aside from that it it, it feels out of place right it's a weird like book ending thing but it's not bookend at the end it's like i don't think we need a narration to explain a witchcraft and demon summoning summoning uh, summoning movie uh we'll get that right? right so anyhow the eerie driving of a character that we don't really know is driving to a giant mansion and it's setting kind of like a gothic horror kind of a feel harsh shadows tense driving at night going up to this giant basically classical british countryside manor not a castle but just a huge estate right this guy goes in and he meets with who I think is Paul Sorvino in a uh, Van Dyke. This he guy really does look like Paul Sorvino. You're right. Oh my God, does he? Yes, it's it's Paulie from Goodfellas in there with a Van Dyke goatee, and you're like, oh, he's evil. And yeah, I mean, it's not exactly subtle, but he comes in, and through this dialogue, you find out that, and subsequent discussions. This guy is, I guess, some professor, inspector of some sort, investigating Carswell, who is going to be our essentially villain of the story. Carswell is the owner of this mansion, and he has some sort of a satanic cult, we're told. Uh, Very nebulous goals, like what is this cult doing? Like 
in my opinion, I think it's an interesting element to this. It doesn't seem like they're up to any trouble whatsoever. They're just right, minding that, their own P's and Q's. Yeah, the, worshiping the devil. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, no problem. I'm surprised. You know what? I I just gotta say right off the bat, I'm surprised that we're dealing with worship and the occult at this point in film history. But like, I did notice they they never really did mention the world words the devil, did they? So I mean, it's all hidden behind witchcraft and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so you you get what they're getting at, but they're not like super rubbing it in your face. Um, but this guy basically was investigating them, and he's going to basically call them out at some conference. <laughs> just the old timey right. satanic panic kind of a thing. Of, right, right. You know. I'm just surprised that we're we're dealing with that. They don't say it, but they're basically Satan worshippers, right? Oh yeah. So I mean. I mean, me technically, I mean, all of our Wicca listeners may argue that maybe not technically and that, you know, they're not calling a Christian demon. It was kind of spanned all these different cultures. Well, I, back I took to it as, as like a, a pagan demon because, yeah, they, yeah. They, you start with Stonehenge, you, you're thinking pagan. Technicalities. But <clears throat> so anyhow, this professor, I guess, was going to bring and shine the light of day on this cult. And again, my interpretation is they just wanted to be left alone. Listen, we're not trying to take over the world. We're just practicing our religion over here. <laughs> I don't know. Cause they, they never at all define what Carswell's nefarious goal is right through this. And he seems to only go after people if he's being directly threatened. It's or wrong. Right. So it is like, I don't know if that's by intent to be a little kind of subversive or not, but it's it's there. Um, so anyhow, the professor is coming here to basically apologize to this Carswell, Paul Servino, saying, you're right. I completely know you're in the right. I believe everything you're saying. I want to publicly um, withdraw all my accusations, clear your name and just be done with it. And the interesting thing here is it sure sounded like Carswell at that time was considering pulling back whatever curse that were, we find out is placed on this professor. And when he's told that the parchment that comes into play later, the parchment that was given and cursed this professor caught fire and disappeared. Carswell, you know, does the, I, the audience knows he's goes, I'll do what I can. And you know, that's nothing, but he looks at the clock and he goes, oh, okay, well you need to be going. Right. And again, my interpretation was that Carswell legitimately might have been content to leave it be give me the um, parcel or yeah, the parchment and i'll call off this curse on your head i don't know if well, i'm see, off base. i don't know because of what what happens later I'll, I'll kind of touch upon it now but from what i understood what gets revealed later is that you don't take the curse off you pass it on to somebody so i don't know if he would have taken the the parchment back i think he was just being glib potentially i think that's fair um but again when we we don't we don't necessarily see him being truly villainous at points right we don't so, but the, i mean there's going to come a point at the end where our main character is going to be trying to give him his parchment back and he, he is doing everything he can to not take it yeah, well, I mean, we'll get to that point, too. But I do think one of the parts that I like, I really like about this movie is it touches upon like a niche genre in horror that I really like. And you see it in The Exorcist. You see it in Rosemary's Baby. You see it in the John Dies at the End book series. Um, evil is real. There are true demons around, but it's confined to like behind closed doors and we're not privy to seeing all the rules that are involved in it. Right. And that it is, can be controlled and manipulated by some, but it's not just running rampant, like demons running through the streets. It's a no. real thing that's contained. 
and it's contained, we're not privy to the full rules. It's contained and we're not privy to the full rules, but I like the it, to go along with this, uh, what you're saying here. Um, the way this usually goes, and it kind of goes this way in this movie, is no one's privy to the rules. Once you become privy to the rules, it's pretty much over for you you're, or you're in danger. Well, it's it's interesting because this is where we don't know what the full extent is. The characters that the Holden and the the Harrington characters that we have as our surrogates looking into the witchcraft world from the outside, they piece together some of the rules, but they don't know the extent of it. Carswell is the person who does. So I think he might have been able to pull the curse back, right? Being the Maybe, one who did it. I'm just saying in these films, I kind of like the the idea of it's the search for knowledge that ultimately puts you in danger. Not that you shouldn't, not that I'm advocating for skepticism, but I mean, I like when, when, when the search for knowledge just puts your life in danger. I just like that concept. Well, there's, I think there's a whole bunch of things. I'll show my hand. I, I quite enjoyed this movie, right? Because it's, it leaves a lot open for you to kind of, it has a vibe to it, right? This movie is vibing on kind of tense um, atmosphere, kind of interesting characters and dialogue. And it's not just cheap, you know, scares, right? And just making 1950s women shriek necessarily. Yeah, I mean, I I was not familiar with this film before I saw it. And given the, given the title... Given the era in which it came out, I was expecting a creature from the Black Lagoon sort of movie. Right. And actually, this is much more um, the 1950s version of a horror thriller or a suspense movie. And I should put a real button on it. Drag Me to Hell is essentially an exact I was I was was going to bring that up at the end. I didn't want to say it, but like as I was watching this movie, I was like, huh. There's a bunch of plot points here that is exactly like Drag Me to Hell, and I had to go on and look at it. Apparently, it was a source of inspiration. But this, the, the yeah, the set pieces and the film almost play out the exact same way. Ends in a train station. It cannot be anything other than an homage, right? It, well, ends in a train station totally. has involves you know passing an item along to someone else to pass the yep. curse. The curse happens in three days, and then you know, as the three days progress, yep. you lose more and more of your sanity. Yeah, it was all dragged me to hell, and I, you know, yep. I was just, I was, I was surprised. Just forty years of filmmaking separating them, right, and the techniques and what they can really do. So, okay, the um, the professor Harrington, right? He is now leaving thinking he's content that Carswell is going to be a man of his word and remove the curse from him. He goes home and then we get maybe the most controversial part of the movie. First off, you see something that looks right out of the evil dead, like a glow or a, like a cloud forming the old classic. I love the special effect of ink and see, water. It, it kind of reminded me of evil dead, but it also kind of reminded me of, have you ever seen the 1970s version of Salem's Lot? Oh, not in a million years. Well, there was a point in that movie where like people see like these ghost children and ghost vampires out the window and they're just kind of floating with this fog effect. And that's what it reminded me of. Yeah, it, it's some, you know, optical effects. I love classical optical effects. So he starts seeing this, you know, cloud form, kind of sparkly lights. And then the controversial element, because the director hated this and it was forced on him by the studio shot without his consent, is you see a quite literal demon, an adorable little puppet kind of just walking up, uh, transparent up, scaring the living hell out of Harrington. He backs up his car into uh, a power line and he gets out and just plays in the electrical downed power lines, which I thought was rather funny. He's like, he went out of his way to climb all over these things and wrestle snakes. Um, Anyhow, he gets zapped. The demon comes up and we get some close-ups of him uh, and we're told later that the demon, in addition to electrocuting this guy, rips him to shreds, right? And then, boom, that's essentially kind of your cold horror movie opening. And then this monster is not to be seen until the last 
15 seconds of the movie, essentially, right? Yeah, pretty so much. One of the interesting things that they could have absolutely done, and it was the director's impulses, you never see this monster. And that you leave overwhelmingly all the movie open to interpretation of, is any of this actually supernatural? And that would have been interesting. But some more, of the it, stuff the director the, put in, it wouldn't have worked still because of the cat changing into a leper. Uh, leopard, we'll see in a little bit. So it's like, mm, I could see not having it in there. It's it's It would have been the more interesting way to go, but I think that as much as I don't like studio interference, I think audiences in the 50s want to see a monster of some kind in these kind of films. So, Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I get it for the time. I want to split the difference. Cutting ahead, right, is leave this one open to interpretation. Leave it as he got electrocuted. You hear the police saying he was ripped to shreds. Leave it nebulous. You don't see it. But then you see it at the end and you go, oh, my God, it was real this whole time. And I, and I, I think would you have can get around, I think you can get around the cat, too, because I think that you could play it off as like, a did, did the cat turn into a leopard or did he just go crazy and, and harm himself while no one was looking because of the curse affecting his mind? I mean, the fact that we see it, and we don't necessarily see it from his perspective suggests to me that we are the impartial eye no, seeing the it way, change, right? The way, the way it plays out in the movie, I agree. I, what I'm saying is right. if you wanted to play this out as, as the monster stays off screen and you want to leave it a mystery till the end, I think there's a way to do the cat thing and still make it work. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think the movie is really solid. But with a couple tweaks, I think it could have been like elite level um, classical horror, right? So moving along, the guy's dead. Now we are introduced to our protagonist, American hero coming in. By the way, this is a British production. Uh, Our American hero, Dr. John Holden, is flying in to Britain. We get a little bit of light kind of comedy on their airplane of him, like, you know, kind of fighting with the dame who will be coincidentally our female protagonist of the story. He's on the classic flight coming in. He is a colleague of professor Harrington. He's a stone cold scientist skeptic coming into whatever this conference was to help kind of expose the Carswell cult, right? The satanic hunters. So when they arrive, basically they find out that Harrington is dead, blah, blah, blah. His colleagues show up. He goes off to continue to do the research into this cult. He goes off to the, the, the reading room at the British Museum. By the way, I've been in that, along with probably about 5 million other tourists every year. Awesome. Oh, that's a real place. Awesome space. Oh, yeah. Um, if you look at the pictures of it now, it's iconic. It's in dozens of movies because they enclose the atrium. It might be where um, the most recent Doctor Strange movie had the fight in the alternate universe with the woman Captain America. I think it's that room is the hallway to get into there. Beautiful, beautiful space. I could live a lifetime in that reading room. It's just an ancient British library. My God, it's heaven. Anyhow, he goes there to do his research into classical occult to debunk basically the cult. And Carswell shows up, lo and behold, kind of does like he's a super interesting character to me. Very charming. Um, very kind of lightly funny. Um, also being oddly menacing at the same time without being overtly threatening. But I was going to say pretty unassuming because he's, yeah. he never talks with a threatening tone. He never comes across as someone that is naturally scary. Right. And here again, I wonder, cause he basically what you find is the way that they curse people is, you know, classical old witchcraft stories is you have to unknowingly accept a parchment that has a written curse on it. So blah, blah, blah. He manages to slip this little parchment paper to Holden. But with that, he also gives him a card 
with via witchcraft disappearing ink a message saying you will die in three days right so again i could interpret this as carswell just trying to scare him off right of like i could pull this curse back at the last moment if i need to i have the tools to do that it doesn't have to just be passed off onto somebody else it's him trying to scare him to just drop what you're doing i'm minding my own business you mind your own go back to the states everything will be cool right because otherwise is it him just purely trying to torture him we see in subsequent discussions how he's so you know personable and trying not to be the direct threatening person I have a hard time seeing it as he, I'm just doing this to try and hurt you kind of a thing. I don't know if it was just, just to try to, try to hurt him. Well, I don't know if it's to try to hurt him because I mean, you get, he gathers from this first meeting that this guy is a doubting Thomas for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, it, I think it's twofold because this guy is here to expose this, this cult for, uh, being a bunch of existing. shenanigans, basically. Just well, yeah, existing. exist existing, but the, but he's going to paint them as con artists because he, he, I mean, he doesn't believe in any of it, right? So, mm-hmm. um, I think it's twofold. One, I think it's to stop him from coming out with the fact that it's existing, and two, it's one of those things like you're gonna believe by the end of this. Um, it'll be too late by the time you believe, but you will believe but you're not going to get a chance to say anything to anybody. I will say the only thing in, I think it's so poorly. I mean, I paid attention to this movie. I was not drifting off, but I still didn't quite get what the role of that guy who is uh, Hobart, who's in this canatonic stupor had somehow been connected to like a murder, but I don't know what it was. So maybe there's some malicious intent with him, because he obviously is terrified of the cult in that. Um, but again, it's so poorly defined. I don't know what the cult, how much they're culpable in it, how much they're responsible for it. I I didn't understand that part of it. But maybe that was the hint that the cult does have something, some scheme that we're, right. we never overtly hear. So maybe there was something there. Maybe on a rewatch, I could suss that out. I don't believe that's anything lost to the edits that we completely missed. But again, the Carswell guy is really interesting. I like the actor portraying him. I want to see more like, what is your plan? I want to see that villainous monologue. We don't get it. We get other monologues of him, like, you know, trying to prove that this exists. I'm kind of left with, and I think you kind of touched on it. It feels like his big motivation is to get the guy to convert, to believe that this exists and then to piss off and to leave him alone. Right. Well, that's the thing is that, I mean, I don't know if I want a villainous monologue. I kind of like it when the, the intentions are left vague. It's a feature. And also maybe something where I'm like, I wanted just that little bit more, still leave it open, but is he just a completely misunderstood dude? Cause also the way his character changes in his last scene confuses me a lot too. And it's just, it's like I said, just right at the edge of being really awesome. And I don't think I'm missing like an interpretation of him. I think it's missing from the page of like, what is his character really about? I think it's missing from the page, but I also think, I mean, some of it's defined in the sense that he's not exactly a great dude. I mean, by, he knows what he's doing with these curses. He knows what's going to happen to them after the end of three days. So, Well, it, again, not to be the defender of the Church of Satan here. I am a little bit. They're kind of cool people. But the what we see of him is... I don't think he's putting on a show. He's putting on a Halloween magic show for the village children at his house. Um, And we don't see too much else, but putting my feet or putting myself in his shoes, these academics are coming in. They're calling conferences to call him out as a Satan worshiper or witchcraft, you know, take your pick. It's interchangeable. 
presumably to ruin his life. Right. And if he's up to nothing really terrible and he's just using black magic or white magic to, you know, make himself live in this castle, we're not shown anything to suggest that it's at the expense of others. Hmm. I don't know. No, his existence isn't at the expense of others, but he does consider lives expendable when he's potentially threatened. Well, self-defense? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, again, it's it's interesting in that he is it, you don't get the you know, like the crazy I'm going to destroy the world. Speech, no, and that's right? what I like about it. Yeah, right. So that's where it's really good. It, I don't know. Like I said, there's just like an extra beat in there. I would have loved to see it a little bit more because I like the character so much. I want that a little bit more, right? So as we're progressing, we get introduced to some of uh, Holden's colleagues, a really unfortunate, um, you know, brown face Indian actor. Not Although you couldn't really tell benefits of black and white. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they technically did the brown face, but... No, they, but, they, but they did everything except give him a mustache, but they pretty much dressed him up like Gandhi. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's like, all right, it is of the time. Uh, let's move on. Let's it's a just character say it's that a, just didn't need to be there. <laughs> let's just say it's not the most racist thing I've ever seen in a movie of this era. It's It's unfortunate, but it wasn't ultimately ruinous. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's just it's a shame because it just didn't need to be there. The character serves no purpose. It didn't. It could just insert another white British doctor. It it just literally didn't matter. They they provided but, nothing in there other to be, I don't know, maybe light comedy relief, but they aren't that either. So it's like, but, I don't know. It didn't need to be there. No, but fear not, people. This is not like your favorite actor, Mickey Rooney and Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oof, no, no. <laughs> it's like, all right, let's move along. So in this mishmash, we do get the connection of Holden and the niece. We find the female lead there is the niece of the Professor Harrington. She m- meets up with Holden Joanna. and base yeah, and um uh, Peggy Cummings. Um, you know, somewhat notable. Mm-hmm. Um Mentions that here's my uncle's diary. He believed in, you know, basically, you know, this parchment. They discover that, oh, oh, I do have it. And the parchment pulls away from them and tries to go into the fire and burn itself. But it's prevented by a fire screen that's in front of their their uh, hotel or her house's fire. So they manage to keep it. He pockets it and he keeps it hidden away. Right. Right. So through this, they now start to really suspect, um, you know, Carswell's up to something. Holden is the scientist. He's very, you know, not believing. We do have a scene where they go off to, you know, follow up, have a conversation with Carswell at his um, his house. And this is where he's given this Halloween party to a bunch of neighborhood kids. And I love it. He's giving just like what they call a white magic show, just, you know, birthday party magician. And he has this very long scene in a clown mask in clown makeup. And again, it's not it's so interesting of a choice that they present him like this. It's not like it's a sinister clown makeup. I kind of interpret it as like he is a little bit more on the harmless side of clown, right? Because this is before clowns kind of really got super popularized as menacing. Well, I thought it was Gacy. So I thought it was kind of metaphorical. I mean, not to to put too fine a point on it, but because I think part of his motive for for why he does what he does to Holden is because Holden thinks of himself as just uh, thinks of him. Carswell is just like a, a a crackpot. I think it's supposed to somewhat signify the fact that oh, you just think I'm like this clown, you know, this crazy person who's talking a bunch of nonsense. Right. And I think it totally fits. And again, when he's challenged and he wants to show that this is legit, again, it's a rather passive, you know, display of his power, right? Like from The Exorcist, why don't you, um, you know, levitate the bed or whatever? No, that'd be a much too vulgar display of power. Yeah. Yeah. So this is like, 
I could do this. I, I, I get the sense again, cause we do see magic in this is probably very, very real. Right. I mean, the fact that we see the monster, the cat changing, coming up, blah, blah, blah. Oh, by the you end, the I, sense... I totally accept it as real. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah you have to, in the, the way that the movie is presented, it's like, I, I guess, you know, Carswell could do a much more vulgar display of power here and make his head pop or something. Right. But right. he just conjures but, but up same, a windstorm. Right. But I, I think that goes along with um, the way he's dressing. I, I think this is like, this is how you see me, isn't it? Right. But it's, again, I, it's the Carswell Defense Society over here. It's, he could do much worse. And oh, yeah. later on, he genuinely tries to steer Holden away from trouble, I think. No, this is all about sending a message. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's just, again, very nice kind of character work. It's the stuff I was flatly not expecting watching this, right? Or going into it. No, so neither was he, I. Yeah, he conjures up this windstorm. Again, Holden sees it as just, you know, good timing, you know, just good luck. Whereas I would be like, I don't know. This is, I'm a stone cold, um, you know, atheist, skeptic, all that. I might start believing when I start seeing conjuring storms that come up. Out well, of especially nowhere. since, you know, they were like, we don't have cyclones here. Yeah, right. Uh, so they go in really good. Just, I mean, nothing necessarily pops out, but it's it's tons of just Carswell trying to explain to a like um, a guy who has his walls up of like, there's stuff out here you don't understand. Right. And you know, not everything is defined by your science and it's, it's just interesting stuff. I don't believe in any of it in the movies universe. It's super cool. I want to believe in that stuff, but yeah. And I think this, this, cause I mean, I know you're the cars will defense society and I see that too, but in the, in the <laughs> section of like um, him be, having a sinister undertone, I like, as he's explaining these things, he's explaining them very nonchalantly to the point where if you are this, real hardcore skeptic that Holden is supposed to be doesn't sound incredibly convincing. Now it sounds convincing to me and it sounds convincing to you because we've been watching the movie, but from the perspective of, of, of Holden, the way he's talking, it's like he's enticing him to still be skeptical and to go further with this. Yep. So what we've, I guess the major next beat point is um, Holden goes to Stonehenge for whatever reason. The There's like a little pointless kind of sub, you know, fetch quest kind of a thing that just enables some more confrontations with Carswell. But they go to Stonehenge. They see the same writing carved into the Stonehenges that's on his parchment. They think they might need to translate it ends up being meaningless. They don't have to translate this at all. It doesn't play into anything. Um, But to do that, they need maybe that book that's missing at the library that Carswell had in that mishmash. Also, we see Carswell's mother, who I thought that was his wife, you know, old movies. I can't figure out age until he, you know, it literally is his mother. When he calls her mother, Uh, it's his mother. She makes a connection to Harrington and Holden and wants to have a seance to try and help them get this curse off their head. So this might be the argument against Carswell's kind of like, I'm just doing this to defend myself. I'll pull it back. The mother seems to think, unless she's totally in on this too, she seems to think that Carswell's kind of up to no good with Harrington and Holden at least and have their best interest in mind. So she convinces them to go to a, you know, the essential kind of bad seance, old turn of the century, you know, mysticism of get into a quiet room, put on the phonograph, turn down the lights, and you just have the guy put on a really shit show. The, the way it's presented is and hold in response to it as that as surface of just the cold read or actually technically this is a hot read because um again i'm the skeptic i know some of the terminology here um 
the mother there of Carswell knows a lot of the details and she could have easily fed it into the Meeks, um, mm-hmm. the people running this sham seance. It's interesting again, where it's like, man, I wish the movie would kind of settle a little bit on keeping the um, question up in the air about what's real in this, because it's very clear that this guy is going to be a phony, but then he puts on a little bit of like, there's a special effects voice put on that the dead, you know, uncle is talking through him. So it's like, huh, is the movie proposing that these seances are actually real too? I think a bit of the message kind of got lost in there. Yeah. And then ultimately I was a little too distracted. I was a little too distracted by him, his convulsions and speaking in tongues. Cause it was funny. Oh yeah. And I, th- I think it's meant to be just obviously meant to be just, this is farcical of like, these are the scam artists. This guy is the one trying to steal your money. Meanwhile, the real ones are the cool cats like Carswell over here and his um, tight ass uh, Van Dyke. Um, this guy is the scam artist, but then he kind of channels a real dead body or, you know, a real person coming through. We do find that Carswell is sitting outside waiting. So did he enact that from the outside? Are seances real? Man, I don't know. The movie got a little confused with its own stance. It did on get this. a little confused, but I mean, I kind of like the idea that it may have been Carswell from outside cutting in because, I mean, up until that point, it was, you know, convulsions, speaking in tongues, and then speaking, you know, really bad. I'm, I'm glad they were said it was supposed to be a Scottish accent because I couldn't tell what that was. <laughs> right. So I guess like the plot thing where, again, if we want to give Carswell this credit and maybe talking through it, that is my my decision on this is he reaches in metaphysically and plants the seed that basically the seance makes them want to go back and break into Carswell's house to get to that rare book, right. To make, do this translation. Um, Joanna Harrington makes up her mind that she's going to do it. Holden says, no, we're not going to do any of that. This is madness. We're not breaking into the, the guy's house. He goes, okay, well, I, this is the fifties. I have to have a sexist comment in this. Uh, you know, a woman, once a woman's made up her mind, blah, 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 I have to do it. So he goes in, breaks into the house. And this is again, where as the, you know, viewpoint of the impartial film viewer, a cat, a demon, we're told defending the book transmorphs. I don't know uh, what the demonology term is into a leopard. He fights a puppet. It's hilarious. It's classic. It's, hilarious. Just, it's just bad stuff, but it's, it's great stuff down on it. Yeah. He's just thrashing it around and casual Carswell pops back in and just has another opportunity to rub it in this guy's face. So, yeah, maybe it makes sense that he planted the seed. He uses mom as a patsy just to get them in to have one more monologue of like, uh, look at here is another magic. I just did it. Can you believe it? And he doesn't. Right. Uh, and again, this is where it's super interesting that he doesn't get the book. Doesn't really matter. It's just another conversation. Carswell tells Holden like, hey, when you go back out to the car, don't go through the woods. There's bad things in the woods. Take the road. And Holden's like, you know what? I prefer to come in the way or leave the way I came in. And he walks through the woods and he gets chased by, you know, an evil dead demon, basically. Right. The chasing um, clouds, the, the, the demon running through the woods kind of a thing. And it's like, again, I think Carswell was maybe trying to help him here. I don't know. Or... I he's don't playing know. 3D chess and he's trying to get him to go through the woods. I don't know. That's exactly that's exactly what I think it is. And I don't think it's that far of a stretch either because I mean the Holden's already not buying what this guy is trying to sell him. So, I think he knows by saying don't go through the woods that that's exactly what he's going to do. I mean plausible again. I guess it's I I think by design enough. I'm going to give the movie credit that it's a feature not a fault. I think it's fair to interpret Carswell's, you know, motives here. And oh, it's absolutely it a feature, is, not a fault. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's the fun of it. Yeah. 
So I guess we now move into the medically uh, unethical portion of the movie where but yet the, pull... the part of the, the part of the the part of the movie that if I had to classify this as scary was the one that part that worked the best for me way more so than that seance but oh yeah so the seance was like the goofy kind of part of it so they bring in this guy again I have a hard time understanding what this guy's role actually was other than to die here quickly it's this Hobart guy who has some well, sort of connection to the cult right well, he's the he's the one that you're going to find out everything. In Drag Me to Hell, he's the medium that they go visit for their seance. She doesn't really do uh, anything. Yeah. She's, she doesn't really do anything except tell you what it is and how to defeat it. Yep. So basically they drug, <laughs> they inject this guy with a bunch of methamphetamines. They say that. I was going to say it's methamphetamine. And then, then I looked it up and I was like, oh, because I looked it up and I was like, that's too close. And I was like. Yeah, methylamphetamine is an offshoot of methamphetamine. So it's just like, they, no wonder this guy freaks out. They just jammed him full of methamphetamine twice. Yeah, he's canatonic here. Take a bunch of trucker speed and then we're going to scare the living hell out of you. Make you trip balls and then you're going to jump out a window. Because that's literally what the scene is. In front of a huge audience for, you know, old timey of... Uh, I guess let's all just get in an auditorium and torture somebody. But, but ironically, the deleted this is what, scene. Ironically, okay. I was just gonna say, ironically, this is what convinces him. The, the oh, guy yeah. on meth is what convinces him. Yeah, so, but again, like I said, in the deleted scene, don't worry, they got the family's approval to kill the guy in front of an audience. So anyhow, they dope his ass up, they hypnotize him, and basically he snaps out of it, and it is like this guy's acting his ass off. Like he goes from catatonic to, to terrified, right? This uh, Hobart guy. Mm -hmm. And he basically data dumps on you that, you know, they show him the parchment. Yes. These are the curses. You have to get that and you can transfer it to somebody else. Right. So my favorite part uh, of that is that is at the end when he, when he's showing him the parchment and he thinks that uh, Holden's trying to give it back to him. Yep. And he freaks out and he <clears throat> jumps. It's our second, at least second jumping out of a movie death in one of our movies. Um, he jumps out, takes a header down like three stories. You see the body, right? Just splattered down there. And a bunch of people come up and look at it and go, nope, he's dead. Mm -hmm. And somehow in this, again, it's like the stone cold scientist guy who has been resistant all the way up through like the, the cat changing the, you know, the monsters chasing him through the woods. Now he's convinced I didn't quite get this jump. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'll buy into it. It's fine. We also have about three minutes left in the movie. I, I think, I, I, think I, I think I would have bought this jump had I not known that it, that they were shooting him full of methamphetamine. Because then it's just like, oh, well, the guy's acting weird and paranoid because he's just high. Unfortunate um, choice of words. I don't get Holden's jump of going from, you know, um, the disbeliever to, oh, now I'm going to take this curse and hand it back to Carswell. Right. Of right. You know, I, I, I didn't quite get that. I mean, maybe well, it's not there because he also finds out quickly in this that Carswell has kidnapped Harrington. Joanna. Yeah, Joanna. Um, yeah. I was going to say the reason that he's convinced at this point, Matt, is because we're already at one an hour and 10 and an hour and 28 minute movie. Yeah, this is where I'm not stressing too much. It, it's fun. So for whatever reason, we find out that Carswell has kidnapped Harrington um, and they're on a train conveniently close enough for Holden to take somebody's car, know all the roads of London, whatever, don't worry about it, and drive to the train station, get on there. And this is where I'm like, well, damn it, this movie is like, it's so much kind of good. It's a little unfortunate where they're in a train car, one of those classic British, you know, four seats, tents, people talking across from each other. It's Harrington is there, canatonic. She kind of gets out of it, 
doesn't really matter. She's effectively not really in the movie for the rest of it. Plays no real part. Holden now has the parchment. Carswell's there and Carswell knows he's going to be trying to give them this. So he is on his toes and not, you know, accepting matchbooks back or, you know, cigarettes back. But the way he's playing it is like he's terrified of this. And I'm like, this doesn't quite feel right. Like he should be a lot cooler with this of Mm -hmm. just like, no, I see what you're doing, man. And not called out, but just play it so cool that I'm seeing through all this. But he plays it as like a scared guy out of his depth, not the cool guy who's been owning all these interactions up through here. He's playing it way too scared. And I, I, I just didn't understand why. Um, so it's a little kind of unfortunate, but right at the I'll end. Tell you, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, if this, well, I'll save this more for the end, but I think that there's a way, again, that you could rewrite this and make that character choice make sense. But I'll save it until we're, we're at the climax. Yeah, so, I mean, basically it, he does sneak it back in by going, Hey, you forgot your coat and hat in here. And for the guy who's now very aware of what's happening, he just, I don't know, caught him in a moment of weakness. I didn't quite accept that he would just turn back in and just take his coat and hat that then had the parchment like reversed pip pocketed into it. Right. But he did. And in that moment he goes, Oh damn it. You did give it to me. And he has the freak out. And we get some wire work to, you know, beat the band. The parchment flies out and Carswell is just hilariously cue the Benny Hill music chasing after it all around the train, down the train tracks. And then right at the stroke of 10, which we were told the demon shows up right when a train comes through and we get an amazing shot of this movie of this puppet coming up. It switches momentarily to a dude in a suit holding a little thrashing human puppet in its hand. And he yeah, rips the living shit out of this thing. We actually see somebody get ripped in half, a puppet. Um, but it is like, that is awesome. So that was great. In fact, yeah, I loved it. I love the hell out of it. Like I get the director and I get his point. He wanted it nebulous, right? Because the demon disappears. The police come up and see, oh, he got destroyed by the train right? Cut in half on the train tracks. It makes sense. It leaves it very ambiguous that maybe there wasn't a demon, but we would have gotten robbed of an awesome sight of the demon ripping a dude in half. I want that half thing of, we don't see the demon at the beginning, but we get the shock of it. Like, Holy Christ, there is a real demon here and it's ripping somebody in half. Bang. We're out of here because that is basically the ending of drag me to hell. And it works really well. I think that ending hangs with you in Drag You to Hell. Oh yes, it does. And and that and that uh that's a good pivoting off point to how I think this could have worked with the same kind of character choices that, that were were made at the end by Carswell, is if you did do the Drag Me to Hell esque ending, where he's acting afraid that he's gonna get the parchment uh, place back with him he does get a parchment placed back with him it turns out it's not holden's parchment and holden's the one that ends up dying just like the end of drag me to hell that's yeah, how you make it i mean work. yeah i think that's like i mean go writing into final thoughts like i'll roll into it of like you know a few thoughts here does it hold up does it stand the test of time I think that's always tricky with horror just because expectations around what horror is, is so different, right? You hear those stories that kids today laugh at the exorcist. And I find that inexplicable. I don't understand how that's true, but you hear it. Right. But then there's plenty of other goofy fifties stuff um, that just doesn't work. I think this is not scary. I think it really holds up from a lot of all these other things that we're talking about. And it's really cool because of that. That being said, I think it's really good. I think it could be super elite if you remove the demon at the beginning. You remove the stuff that you just can't explain away as like, you know, some scientific thing. 
and then leave the giant reveal of like, oh, wow, it was real this whole time for the end. And whether that's Carswell getting killed, whether that's Holden getting killed, either one, I think it could totally work, right, of like Carswell walking away thinking he's in the clear and then suddenly a demon appears behind him and rips him to shreds and nobody sees it. Like, I think that could work. I think Holden getting killed at the end would work. I don't think it would work in the 50s. I don't think it would be allowed in the 50s necessarily. Um, but I think there's so many things the the again, the bones of this and so much more of it is great. It just like, Ooh, it could have been even like timelessly cool. I think if they did a few little tweaks, because I think the Carswell character and actor is awesome. Um, and so much ounce ounce of it worked again. It just had like a cool vibe to this movie all the way through. And it could have been just even more elite. It could have been more elite, but I think it's pretty elite in the sense that clearly it's a concept and a story that works because they were able to do this thing again in 2009. That I think that speaks somewhat to its timelessness. Uh, oh, yeah. Maybe the way that it's executed here is a little bit dated, but I think that the structure is good enough to where you can do a modern interpretation of it. They did. Sam Raimi did with Drag Me to Hell. Um as far as this movie goes, though, it surpassed my expectations because I really did think I was going in for like a creature feature and not this sort of psychological thriller. Now, it's is it, you know, as deep a psychological thriller as you get like something in the 80s or 90s? No, but it's certainly a, a step, a cut above what 50s horror was doing. That's for sure. So, yeah, I, I liked it. Yeah, I mean, it. this was certainly a treat. I think we, it's, you know, for us at least, stumbled on something I would definitely recommend to others. I think it's a great, like, if you want, like, history of science or history of cinema, uh, double feature it. Watch this, watch Drag Me to Hell. They're both ostensibly horror, told in different ways. Drag Me to Hell puts a lot of comedy into it. And on top of that, like, really good horror both of them end in like really striking ways and they, it sits with you a little bit. Right. So oh, yeah. I say double feature it. It's, it's worth your time. A Sam Raimi underrated gem, I would say. And then, you know, this fifties uh, horror underrated gem as well. All right. I think we need to put a wraps on our Halloween, you know, spooktacular here and transition that over to November. Yeah. Yeah. So, Matt, I will say the random number generator did you well this month. I think you have some really good choices. It sure did. It sure did. I think this will be, you know, um, we'll discuss because I want to kind of reset and make sure you have your opportunities in October. So maybe we reset in like January and I double dip to move things over. So this might be your last chance for a little bit. But, Matt, your choices are from 1968. The Thomas Crown Affair, starring Steve McQueen, Faye Dunaway, a bored millionaire decides to live his life on the edge and stages a multi-million dollar bank heist, but falls in love with the insurance investigator from the victim bank uh, who suspects him of the crime. I mean, at least an iconic movie, right? Steve McQueen, they're all iconic. From 1941, The Big Store, a detective and his zany pals take over a failing department store, starring, starring your three Groucho favorites. Marx, Chico Marx, and Harpo Marx. Um, yeah, I mean, I obviously have a favorite here. This is um, was billed as their last movie together. Um, it's definitely at the tail end. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely a Mars Brothers movie clocking it at a cool 80 minutes. Oh, that would be a great one. From 1929, the Viking Norse half brothers vie for the throne and for the same woman. Uh, so this is free on like daily motion. I click through it, just scrubbing through Every literally every time I clicked through it, it was the same music and in different scenes, guys just doing old timey sword fighting. So just click, clack, click, clack. And it was just every <laughs> every five minutes through the movie, it felt like. So I think, you so know, what you're going to get with that one. Uh, so this is the Italian peasants movie of this go around. 
yeah, but 150 minutes shorter or something like that. <laughs> I think you could do a lot worse. This is, it's, you know, I think it would be very disposable. I don't know what we'll have to talk about it. From 1958, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. As a family of a wealthy Southern patriarch informs his children that he is dying of cancer, lies in secret service or lies in secret surface that threaten to rip the family apart. Starring Elizabeth Taylor and Paul and Newman. Paul Newman. And Burl Ives. And then finally, what you know, we always get, you know, the options dip into an epic. But from 1962, how the West was won panoramic western following the daughter of a, a pioneering family from her youth in 1830 to old age that is like one of those ones i we won't do it justice on whatever little screen that we're watching but right no that yeah. that, that was supposed to be like you wanted to see that on the biggest screen possible back in the day when it came out oh yeah absolutely so there you go matt again at least you know three to four pretty notable ones and then the dark horse the viking in there right well so my hope again i have to make the prediction or i hope it's the big store just as an excuse to go back and watch night at the opera and duck soup for the i don't know literally probably the 50th time each uh but i'm gonna go my gut and say you're gonna go with the thomas crown affair so you got to knife me last <laughs> run through so i'm gonna knife you i i, I do want to see a Marx brothers movie especially when we if it were to come up in this because i it's something that we should touch on because they are so good i really was was torn between cat on a hot tin roof and the thomas crown affair because they're both such iconic films i love me some drama i love me some action but i remember um in i think it was 1999 when the Pierce Brosnan version of the Thomas Crown Affair came out. And I've never seen either version. Let me just put that out there. Um, but I remember hearing at the time that it was a remake. And I was mm -hmm. very curious about where it came from originally. And so the fact that it comes up here, I kind of want to see the original and I kind of want to see the remake. So I, I, um, I do want to go with the Thomas Crown Affair. We know each other quite well. I think we have a pretty good record at predicting these if we had to go back and check. I will say I have seen this uh, ages back. I don't remember much, uh, but I did recently rewatch the the remake, um, Pier uh, the Pierce Brosnan one, and it's quite good. I like that. Yeah, I heard this is one of those yeah. ones where I heard both the original and the remake are good. So that's kind of why I wanted to see this. Yeah. I mean, they're all about the chemistry and just, you know, it's Steve, Steve McQueen and Pierce Brosnan and then Faye Dunaway and, um, and uh, Rene Russo, Rene right? Russo. Right. Yeah. And just like the chemistry. And it's just like, yeah, I'll watch them just in kind of crazy locations. And like, there you go. That's enough. So, yeah, it they're they both have merit. I mean, it's not out of the question that I think you could do another remake with insert your insanely charming, beautiful leads again and have it be just as compelling. Right. Well, yeah, no, I feel like it has kind of like that, you know, different genre movie, obviously, but it has like that oceans 11 quality where that's a film that you can do every 20 years or so, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I, I, I think so. It's just, you know, the power of the cast, right. The, the story is pretty solid. So just, get some charming people in there that look beautiful and just let them take care of it. All right. I don't have the air dates on that. So check your local listings, but Matt, I think that will wrap things up. There's a number of ways that you can get in contact and keep the conversation going. I don't know if I want to say we both, you know, landed on two sides of the Carswell debate, but definitely let us know if you had opinions on what his scheme was, or if you just wanted to be happy and just conjure up a light demon or a fae every once in a while and not really harm anybody. I think that was Carswell's deal. He just wanted to be left alone. And he had a bunch of uh, nosy Nancy's coming in, trying to expose him to the world. They got what was coming to him, I might say. But anyhow, to continue that conversation, you could be re we could be reached at email at tcmchallenge at gmail.com. We can be found on Facebook at, t at the TCM Challenge. And, you know, Twitter under the same handle. Pretty simple to find us there. I can be found at Pro Sub Zero as the individual on there. Um, definitely sports is coming up, but I'm trying to chip through some like Halloween movies I've been meaning to get to. I'm a big fan of Hellraiser. I just watched the new one. It's fine. 
Um, but I'm making big plans to watch uh, the Leprechaun movies again. <laughs> it's been a long time for that. Maybe. I don't know. I hate myself, so maybe I'll tr- I'll do that. So we'll see. But yeah, Pro Sub Zero. Matt? And you can find me at mhanson0207 uh, talking about horror movies, different kinds of movies, current events, pretty much anything and everything. I just documented, I think a few weeks ago, my journey through all the Halloween movies leading up to Halloween ends. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, that and more at mhanson0207. Did you sign the petition to uh, remake the ending again? The fan petition? No, because I no, cause, no, cause I loved Halloween Ends. Oh, good. Well, I'm happy for you. I <laughs> haven't seen anything for it, but I, I'm very happy you like your franchise ending. All right. So join us next month when we inevitably fall in love with Steve McQueen and Faye Dunaway in the Thomas Crown Affair. With that, I'm Matt in Buffalo. And I'm Matt in Arizona. Thank you so much for listening to this month's, this month's TCM Challenge. And don't forget, listeners, some things are more easily started than stopped. Mm.